0: Good morning. My name is Stephanie. I'm a member here at Redemption. This morning our reading comes from Colossians chapter 3 verses 22 through chapter 4 verse 1. Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are our earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word for us today.
1: Good morning church, let's pray together before we look to this passage. Father God, we thank you so much that you are so kind, so merciful and so gracious to us that you speak to us, you reveal yourself and your will to us, even as it relates to the work that we do. What an incredible, infinite, glorious God you are to descend to us in this way, to speak towards our life in the body here on earth and to give us timeless wisdom of what it looks like to honor you in our work. Help us to do that. Use these words to that end, we pray today now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, there are a few things we're going to need to recall in order to read our passage today in the way I think it was meant to be read. Things from a few weeks ago and even a few more weeks behind us there. But first, we need to remember that just a few weeks ago here in Colossians, Paul told us to put on the new self together as the body of Christ, if you will. And in this new self, he said, there is no longer slave Or free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, if a slave and his master are both in Christ, their relationship is no longer first and foremost defined by that slave-master relationship. They are defined, their relationship is rather, by Christ, who is all and in all. He is the point of all things, including them. It's important for us to remember today. We also have to remember that little sermon series we did right before this one, Paul's letter to Philemon. Do we remember this one? The subtitle of that series is When the Gospel Turns a Servant into a Brother. Today we're going to see why you typically want to do Philemon and then Colossians together. If you'll remember, that short little letter was written by Paul to one man in this Colossian church we're going to see, um, named Philemon. And Philemon used to own a slave named Onesimus, but something happened. And based on what Paul has said in the letter to Philemon, chances are Onesimus, his slave, was, had stolen from him, but, but we don't know exactly the details, but their relationship was broken and Onesimus ran away. That we do know. Then Onesimus met the apostle Paul. He came to faith in Christ and in that letter to Philemon Paul was pleading with him probably even you could say pressuring him to receive Onesimus back this time he said not just as a servant but as a brother do we recall this series not long ago a few months ago we need to remember both of these things what well, Paul has just said that there is no longer slave or free but Christ is all in all and we need to remember Philemon and Onesimus, and here's why. So look ahead, if we could, to chapter 4. If you have your Bible open to Colossians, look with me at chapter 4, starting in verse 7. First, Paul tells this Colossian church that he's sending a man with uh, this letter named Tychicus to share a report. Now, Tychicus is probably the one who delivered this letter to the church. He may even have been the one who would have stood up and read it aloud in the church. But then look what Paul says in verse 8. He says, I have sent him, that's Tychicus, to you. For this purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Paul says, Onesimus, our beloved, our faithful and beloved brother, who, Paul says, is one of you. In other words, he's saying, uh, you might remember this man, Onesimus. Uh, He used to be Philemon's slave. You know Philemon, a member of your church. He ran off. And he's now a Christian. I'm sending him here with this letter. He is one of you. And so I want you to picture this man named Tychicus reading this entire letter that we've been going through to the church with Onesimus, Philemon's estranged slave, standing next to him. We don't know if, if that's exactly how it would have unfolded, okay? Just to be clear. But based on the data we do have in these letters, it seems perfectly reasonable. Maybe it did. And then picture Philemon, the slave owner, the master, listening as Tychicus read this letter with his former slave by his side, probably seeing him for the very first time since he's run off. And imagine Philemon and how he would have felt when he heard, there is no longer slave or free because Christ is all in all. Imagine what he would have felt when he heard master's, Treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In the ESV, in in some places, uh, they use the word slave here in the book, and in others, they use the word bondservant, but the two words are basically interchangeable. In this day, what would have been a bondservant was considered to be the property of his master, much like we would consider a slave. Anytime we read about slavery in scripture, as American Christians in particular, it's very tempting for us to just picture the American slave trade of the Confederate South, which of course is horrific in every conceivable way. Now, on one hand, uh, without a doubt, there would have been plenty of injustices in first century Greco-Roman slavery. I would argue, I think most Christians these days would argue that slavery is by definition Unjust. You cannot actually own another person made in the image of God. On the other hand, I do think it would be a mistake for us just to equate these two modes of slavery, because they were different in a few very important reasons that are going to help us to understand what Paul is saying here and why. Uh, This system of slavery was often first entered into willingly by the bondservant or slave. Uh, It was seen as a legitimate life option for many people who actually lived in poverty, especially apart from social programs, welfare systems that we have today. Slaves often enjoyed a higher status in the culture and even a better life quality, for instance, than poor people who were free. Slaves were even considered to be a part of their master's household, in a way, which is why Paul is addressing them here right after addressing the members of the household. They're kind of part of that equation, in fact, but most importantly, this system of slavery that we are reading about was not based on race. People were not dragged across the world against their will to serve against their will simply because of the color of their skin. Now, I wanna be very clear, I am not saying that this kind of slavery was squeaky clean or, or basically that it was just, basically just like our work today. It's, it's not. Uh, but it's also important that we don't just assume, well, this doesn't apply to me, because I'm not a slave or a master, and and I never will be. If we approach this passage in that way, I think we will miss what God has for us in these verses, and I think there is quite a bit that he has for us. On one hand, Paul is speaking to slaves who worked in a circumstance that we cannot relate to. We can't. On the other hand, he is also speaking to power dynamics within working relationships, and this is something that all of us can relate to. So whatever our work may be, and in particular, whether we're in authority over people in our work or we're under someone else's authority in our work, Paul is trying to encourage us in these verses, listen, let's let Christ be all in our work. Let's let him be all in our work. In these verses, Paul gives instruction to both groups, to slaves who were under authority, And to masters who were in authority. And we're going to see that in both cases, Christ is ultimately the point of their work. And in Paul's mind, that should totally transform the way they go about their work. And so maybe you are struggling to see the significance of the work that you do on a daily basis. Maybe the work that once was life giving and fulfilling for you now seems more like a drain to you and is starting even to take a toll as the weeks go on. Paul wants us to see in this instruction to first century slaves the church, of Christ can be all in our work, even when we don't love the work when we work with, from this new self he's encouraging us, when we work with this heavenly mindset, even incredibly burdensome work can be done to the glory of God. So what I wanna do is just is walk through our passage and all I wanna do is draw out the one unifying theme in our passage, which we already covered, that whether we're in authority or under authority, Christ must be all in our work. This is the goal. I want you to see that in the passage. Then we're going to circle back and talk about some applications, what this means for the way that we work. So first, let's look to the passage together, if you have your Bibles open. First, Paul addresses bond servants, and he spends most of his time instructing them. But I want you to notice that there is a consistent theme, again, throughout his instruction. It is that the key to working in a way that honors God is to see that all work is ultimately about Christ. And so look with me uh, at our first verse. Uh, First, much like he just told children to do, by the way, in last week's passage, Paul says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, he says, fearing the Lord. Now there's a kind of a play on words that is happening in this passage in the original Greek that you can't really understand when it's translated to English, <clears throat> excuse me, but it has to do with the word master and the word Lord. And basically in the Greek, they're actually the same word. So he's basically saying here, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters fearing the master. And again, this is ultimately the point of our entire passage. Whatever it is we're doing here on earth for work, it is not about what we're doing here on earth. It is about Jesus. He is all in our work. We see the same thing in verse 23 as well. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, he says, and not for men. Now, even though he just told these bondservants to obey their earthly masters, who are men, by the way, He said, the reason you should obey these earthly masters is not just to please these earthly masters. It is to please Christ as if you are serving him because you ultimately are. Same principle applies when it comes, notice, to the reward that they will receive for their work. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. He says, knowing this, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, and then he kind of reiterates this theme, just he just says it point blank: you are serving the Lord Christ. It couldn't be any clearer than that. So, according to Paul, these slaves were not just working to survive, they were not just working to be recognized or rewarded in some way by their masters, they were working with an internal inheritance in mind, the the inheritance they will receive from the Lord. Now remember, this is not the first time Paul has talked about an inheritance. Back in chapter one, Paul told this entire church that it was God the Father who qualified them to share in an inheritance. Then the next passage, he tells us that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. In this day, the firstborn was the rightful heir of a family's Inheritance. So to say that Christ is the firstborn of all creation is to say that he is the heir of all creation. This is the inheritance that Paul is talking about here. This is the inheritance he's encouraging these slaves to look forward to. He is saying, look, don't just work hard for a reward here and now. He is saying, work hard because in Christ, we will all inherit all of creation as our reward. In the life to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, that, he's saying, is what you should work hard for here and now, again, even as a slave. Now again, just picture Onesimus here, this former slave who likely stole from his master, Philemon, and then ran off. Picture him listening to this as it was being read in this church. Before he was a Christian, no, he did not patiently wait for a heavenly inheritance. No, he likely took what was not his, and he ran off. (laughs) And I imagine he was starting to sweat as this letter began to shine a spotlight and expose the very sin that likely broke his relationship with Philemon, who may, by the way, still have had a legal right to him as a slave. I'm sure he only began to sweat all the more as this next verse was read. He says, for the wrongdoer, Paul says, will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. In other words, even slaves who are often treated unjustly, even they will be judged for their wrongdoing. He says there is no partiality. You can almost hear Paul addressing this directly to Onesimus. Chances are, in this moment, Onesimus stood condemned. His sins were laid bare for the whole congregation to see. This man was in trouble. Even in first century Greco-Roman slavery, this kind of trouble rarely ended well for slaves. But then I picture his posture changing. As he heard what was read next. If you look with me at chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That was it. Paul has one simple instruction for masters like Philemon be just, be fair with your servants because you serve a master too. You serve the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, remember, who reconciled you in his body of flesh and rose again to be all in your life and your work. And all of that happened, I remind you, you were qualified for this same inheritance, Master Philemon, when you least deserved it. Don't forget that. Be just, be fair in the way you treat this new spiritual brother, Onesimus, because Christ is all in both of you. To notice, Paul's instinct here is not to tear down the entire system and institution of slavery. Slavery. In many ways, that would not even have been possible for him in the position he's in, in the culture, and the government system that he's in. It's not the point of this passage. This passage is not speaking to the overall merits of this system. But what he does says, say, rather, you cannot miss this, leaves slavery utterly unrecognizable to the way that it often exists in Every context it exists. This simple instruction to masters would have flipped the institution of slavery on its head entirely. Masters would never be encouraged, much less commanded, to deal fairly with their servants. That's not how it worked. Masters would never be reminded that they were in some way under someone else's authority, under, under another master themselves, especially not in relation to their slaves in particular, and especially not in public with slaves there in the room to hear of it. But apparently this is what it means, that there is no longer slave or free in this new self. Again, it doesn't mean that the institution of slavery was done away with altogether. It's just a simple historical fact. It, It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that particularly within the body of Christ, it has been utterly transformed to the point of being completely unrecognizable. Most would say that within time, these truths would lead to now slavery being seen by most as even an obsolete, utterly unjust system altogether back then, it would have been very tense for Philemon and Onesimus to stand in this same room to hear this letter being read. Uh, Their emotions would have likely been all over the place. One moment feeling vindicated, the next moment feeling convicted, and and vice versa. But I like to think, or, or at least hope, that in the end, the hearts of these two men were softened towards one another by these very words and the the tension that often corrupts and distorts our work, even today, between those in authority, those under authority, was redeemed in Christ. Again, we may not be slaves or masters, but we do understand power dynamics and how they impact our work. Most of us know what it means to be under someone else's authority in our work Some of us know what it means to be in authority over others in our work, and Paul is trying to encourage us here, church, either way, let's let Christ be all in our work. If we are under authority, let's work as if it is Christ's authority that we're under, because it ultimately is. If we are in authority, let's not forget that we are also under his authority, because we absolutely are. Christ being all in all must change our work. Now let's just consider a few simple applications for us today. Uh, whatever it is that you do for work, uh, whether you are a cook, or a healthcare professional, a contractor, an architect, a stay-at-home mom, Whatever it is you do, whether you are in authority, whether you are under authority, what does it look like when Christ is all in our work? This is what I want to consider now. I want to share three marks in particular of Christ's exalting work, and the first one is this. When Christ is all in our work, first, we work as if working for Christ himself. We work as if working for Christ himself. This is again why Paul encourages both slaves to work heartily and for masters to be just and fair. In both cases, it's because they have a master in heaven who they are ultimately working for. The fact that Christ has risen to be preeminent over all things, including our work, needs to totally change the spiritual posture of our work. In fact, in a way, it makes our work, it turns our work into worship. As Paul just told us back in verse 17, whatever it is you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything, church, that's worship. Everything we do, including our work. Paul also puts it this way in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, he says, your spiritual worship. In other words, worship is not just something we do when we are trying to do spiritual things. It's not something we do just when we gather for a worship service like this, even. Everything we do in the body is now an act of worship, including our work. But let's just consider here, what does that actually mean, right? Uh, In what sense is Christ really the point of our work? Is that just kind of a happy thought? Are we supposed to kind of stop and pray every once in a while? What does Paul have in mind here When he says this, in one sense, I think it means that Christ is not disinterested in the things we do here on earth, however trivial they may seem to us. Uh, It means that he is fully invested in the way that humans live together. (laughs) It, It means that God is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth by the blood of his cross, and this includes our work This is the point of the entire book of Colossians, I'm convinced. This is what Paul wants for us to mature in as a Christian in our Christian lives. He wants us to see that Christ is all. Christ in all. He is the point of everything. In him, all things hold together. And here's what that means, church. It means that your work, it just is about Jesus. It just is because everything is. Our work is not just a toil that we need to endure. It's not just pointless, menial tasks that we have to do until we get to heaven someday. It's not just a means even of finding personal fulfillment. Our work is a part of God's plan to reign over his creation through his image-bearing people. And church, that is the project that Christ has ultimately come to redeem. He didn't just come to get some people into heaven someday. He came to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth, making peace by the blood of Jesus' Christ, He came so that his redeemed people could do what we were always intended to do, and that is namely to make the invisible glory of God visible by everything we do in the body. And so church, let's, let's bring that conviction with us as we show up to work tomorrow morning. Uh, architects, contractors, again, you're not just making plans and meeting deadlines. You are subduing the earth by creating beautiful spaces where humans can gather and glorify Christ together. Realtors, uh, you are not just writing offers and scheduling closing dates You are helping image bearers to fill the earth so that they can be fruitful and multiply and glorify Christ in it. Healthcare professionals, you're not just helping people stay healthy as if this life is all that there is. No, you are helping image bearers stay alive so they can keep glorifying Christ in their bodies. Stay at home mothers. Uh, You are not just keeping up with tasks and wrangling kids. No, you are shaping image bearers, and you are cultivating a home so that Christ can be all in all of it. Now, is our work wrought with dysfunction and strife and all kinds of challenges? Absolutely, it is. This is what it means to be uh, living in a fallen world, And, and this is part of the curse, even. The curse of sin affects our work. But does Christ reign preeminent over all of it even now? Yes, he does. Is this world and all that we do in it held together by him even today? Yes, it is. And should we do everything? Should we work in the name of Christ Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father even today? Yes, we absolutely should. Whatever it is that we do, church, we are serving the Lord Christ. And next, I want us to see that this should also change the spiritual quality of our work. Um, next, when Christ is all in our work, we work heartily with sincere hearts. I want to speak to the heart here of our work. What, what is going on in us as we work here, right? If Christ is the point of all work, if He is meant to be honored and glorified by all of it, this also means that He is dishonored when we do our work half heartedly. If our work was just about us or the people we serve, well, then sure, it makes sense that sometimes, maybe even most of the time, we might just kind of phone it in and just, you know, call it a day. Uh, We might even assume, actually, that, like many do, that leisure is ultimately the real point of life, and work is just a necessary evil to get more leisure. That's not the case. As Paul says, uh, we should work heartily as for the Lord and not just for men. I want you to notice he also encourages these slaves to work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, Can you? That's just unbelievable, really, to think about that. If this is true of first century slaves, how much more so should this be true of us in our work today? I love how the NIV renders verse 22. It says, To obey your master, not only when their eye is on you, and to curry favor with them, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. In other words, Church, let's not just settle for the appearance of sincerity in our work. Uh, Let's not work hard just to be seen as someone who is hard-working. Let's actually give ourselves to our work with all of our hearts. Let's work in such a way that if those who were in authority over us could see into our hearts, they would actually be pleased with what they see about our motivations in work. See, the truth is, we live in a very cynical world, and we live at a very cynical point in our world, and for that reason, I think cynicism is just sort of assumed in our, in our work. Uh, it's kind of just part and parcel of the culture. In, in many ways, it's almost seen as a sign of sincerity and authenticity, cynicism, that is. Uh, as if those who are constantly disappointed and grieved by everything, and those who are constantly de- deconstructing and tearing everything down, they're the ones who are being real, Right? But we can see that this kind of attitude towards our work is not what God intends for us. It's really not. He wants, again, even slaves, by the way, which is very significant. He wants even slaves to work heartily with sincere hearts. He does not want us to constantly walk around ruminating over just how dysfunctional our workplace is and how poorly everything is being run, and if this leader would just do what I think they need to do, everything would be fixed and cleaned up and set right. Now, again, if we want to work with that kind of cynicism in our hearts, chances are it will not be hard for us to gain a hearing from others. There will probably be plenty of others in our life who would be happy to join us in that misery. But what if we worked differently as Christians? What if we were known for bringing our whole heart into the work that we do, even when the circumstance isn't all that ideal? And what if when people observed us working in this way, they didn't just see a high-minded religious person sort of gritting and bearing a terrible situation in order to appear more spiritual? What if it was more than that? What if as people got a glimpse deeper into our hearts, what they saw in us as we worked was sincerity? No, we really mean it. We are really trying to glorify the God of all creation in the work that we do. We know uh, the circumstances are not always ideal. We know we may deserve more recognition than we're probably going to. To get, But we love what we do, and we do it with passion. And if, for instance, someday a door opens for us to find a better opportunity somewhere else, a better job, uh, well, we'll thank everyone that we've worked with along the way. We'll help to whatever ability we can to make that transition fruitful for them, and we will leave with respect rather than fantasizing about just telling everybody off on the way out, And burning all of our bridges. Because we are not all in our work. Christ is all in our work. So in what ways might we need to adjust our approach to our work? Whatever that is. Uh, In what ways are we tempted to make our work about us? And drudge through it with very little hope and very little faith. Rather than working heartily with sincere hearts. Do you think one reason why we're often tempted towards cynicism in our work is because we are expecting it to go a certain way, right? Or maybe we're even expecting a certain reward at the end of our work, but over time it becomes clear our work may not go the way we were hoping. We may not even get the reward that we were hoping for. Well, next I want us to see that when Christ is all in our work, finally, number three, we work with his reward in mind. We work with his reward in mind, and again, That reward is this heavenly inheritance that we have to look forward to. This is probably the most shocking aspect of our passage today. Paul is telling slaves who almost unequivocally had no hope of inheriting anything, by the way. He is telling slaves who often worked in very unpleasant, even unjust situations. He is telling slaves to work heartily, with sincere hearts, and he encourages them to do this knowing, he says, that from the Lord they will receive the inheritance as their reward. This is what should drive us. This is what we should long for in our work. And again, the inheritance he's referring to is all of creation forever. Church, the reward that we are after in our work will inevitably shape the way that we do our work. If we're ultimately just working for the money or for the recognition or even for a personal sense of satisfaction, our work will always leave us wanting because we will never be able to find enough of those things, never enough money, never enough recognition, never enough achievement and accomplishment. Church, as Christians, we need to work with our eternal inheritance in mind. We already have it. It's secure. We have been qualified for it by God the Father. This is such an important part, I think, of what it means to let Christ be all in our work. We need to work in our bodily lives here on earth with our eternal resurrected life in mind. We need to work knowing that in Christ we will eventually inherit all of creation, and we will work together for all of eternity to fill and subdue it to the glory of God apart from all sin, apart from all strife, and even apart from death. When we are discouraged by our work, when we crave and we long for recognition we may never get, let's not grow bitter and cynical. Let's instead look to Christ. Let's set our minds on the things above, not on the things of this earth, and let's long for the day we will see him face to face. Let's long for the day where he will say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, dwell with me forever. I will always be with you. You will always be my people, I will always be your God, and you will never be defeated or discouraged by your work ever again. Church, that day is coming for those of us who are in Christ. That day is coming, and we need to work today as if that day is right around the corner. Just briefly, if we are in authority over others in our work, we're the boss this should also change the way that we lead those under our authority. Uh, Since we, uh, our ultimate reward, again, is eternal, it's heavenly, and it's fully secured already in Christ, as a result, we don't have to lord our leadership over others to pursue some sort of bottom line, whatever that may be in your work. We can afford to maybe even make a little bit less money, maybe even let things be a little bit less productive even from time to time, in order to honor the lives of those who work for us, to seek and to serve their best interests. We can do the right thing, even when doing the right thing is not the most profitable thing. In fact, we must in Christ. We can help others that work for us to cultivate a healthy work-life balance and guard them even against burnout, rather than just pressuring and squeezing them, driving them for some greater earthly reward for us at the end of it. And if we do lead the people who work for us in this way, and if they are pleasantly surprised by it, and if they even ask us why it is that we work in this way, listen, let's tell them this. Let's tell them it's because I'm going to inherit all of creation forever and ever. When Christ comes back and I am raised with him to eternal life. I don't really have a dog in this fight. I'm just trying to glorify God to the best of my ability because I am convinced that that is what my entire life in this body is all about. Our work is simply a means of praising and glorifying our God. It's about Christ. It is about him risen and raised high above all things to be preeminent over everything. And it turns out that putting on this new self totally changes our work here and now. Uh, That is both for those who are under authority and for those who are in authority. It takes our often sin-corrupted power dynamics, and it redeems them. It allows us to work together at peace. In this day that we're reading of here, it even flipped the institution of slavery completely on its head. Caused it to operate the entire opposite of the way the world would have expected it to operate. Because instead of always resisting the authority of others, or instead of imposing our authority onto others, in this new self we can work as if we are just one small part of God's cosmic plan to reconcile all things over a new authority under the authority of christ and so church let's let our pride and our cynicism go let's lay these things aside let's work with this strange new heavenly mindset and whatever it is we do let's let christ be all in our work